Welcome to Dig In, the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights. Each week, Jess Gedeke chats with world-class brand professionals to bring you the story behind the story of some of the most breakthrough innovations, marketing tactics, and campaigns. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dig In podcast. I am Jess Gedeke. I have been looking forward to this conversation today because I've had the privilege of seeing our guests' talents and innovation and leadership on display for many years. So I'm really thrilled today to be joined by Jill Boyce. She's former head of insights at Campbell's and J.M. Smucker. She's worked across so many categories and so many brands, iconic brands that I'm sure all of us have in our pantry today. So I can't wait to tap into her experiences for inspiration. Jill, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jess. Great to be here. Let's start with telling the listeners a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So like you kind of set up, I've been in insights for a really long time. All of that has been in consumer packaged goods, almost all of that in the food and beverage industry. And I just love our industry and the space because our brands are amazing. Our consumers are fascinating and there's always new meaty challenges to solve. And I always think about myself, not just as an insights and an analytics professional, but also as that strategist and thought partner for our teams. Because again, like we always have really good challenges and opportunities to get after. Yeah, never dull in this industry. I totally agree. So I'm just going to throw an impromptu question out there to get us going today. So um, what's the last show that you binge watched? Oh my goodness, that is such a great question. So um, I am a sucker for anything PBS masterpiece. And so as soon as they have a new historical fiction or true historical story that comes out, um, that's what I'm binge watching every day. Very nice. That's a good one. We haven't heard that type of tie lately, so I I like that a lot. Well, let's dig in. Let's get into your story. Our our listeners really do crave inspiration from other leaders, and the best way to inspire, we think, is to tell a story. So we'd love to hear the story of Folgers 1850. I know you were integral in the launch of that brand during your time at Smucker. So go back to the beginning. How did that idea originate? What inspired it? Uh, Forza's 1850 is such a wonderful case study to talk about. And I have such respect for teams that work on innovation because it is hard, hard work. Um, And this is definitely a good story where there are some things that worked well and some things that didn't work so well that we can take good lessons learned from. So Folgers 1850 Coffee really came about because of smart strategy. And as I think about innovation strategy, I believe that it always should flow from brand, portfolio, and or category strategy, rather than living on an island by itself. Now, you might still have separate teams that are working on innovation initiatives, but the strategy should always be connected. And so for 1850 Coffee, this was a really good example where all those things came together. So from a brand perspective, you know, it's linked to Folgers, and I know we'll talk more about that linkage coming up, um, but Folgers as a brand really needed to think about how to bring new, younger consumers into the portfolio, as opposed to the kind of older consumers who were drinking the core product from the portfolio. So it was a really good brand reason for this space to be explored. From a portfolio perspective, it was also really smart strategy because um, Folgers and coffee in general are really important to the Smucker company. It's a big part of their revenue, high profit margin. And so finding ways to continue to grow that business also made a lot of sense. And from a category perspective, we really took a look at what was driving growth in the category. So if Folgers 
mostly plays in the more mainstream, kind of in that canister format of the coffee category, but growth was coming from the more premium segments in formats like bagged coffee, figuring out a way to play in that part of the category made a lot of sense. So for Folgers 1850, coming together from both a brand reason to believe, a portfolio reason to believe, and a category reason to believe, that was, again, really smart foundational strategy work that the team did. So important to start there and to be organized at that forefront of the innovation. Tell us a little bit more about what Folgers 1850's proposition was. How would you describe that concept or product? So Folgers 1850, um, it was one, a delicious product. I have to give just a ton of credit to the R&D team who developed this really amazing, delicious range of coffees. Um, It was quite a departure from what you might think of as core Folgers coffee. So if most of Folgers portfolio is more of a um, a kind of a a medium roast, um, generally kind of a appeals to a lot of different people kind of a profile. This particular coffee was more premium and a bolder product profile. So it was a very different kind of product um, formula, if you will, versus the rest of the portfolio. And because it was living in a different section of the category, it also came to life in a very different way from core Folgers. So most people probably are very familiar with that red can of Folgers. It's so iconic. This was a very different space in the category playing in that premiumed bagged segment. And I will say some of the smartest insights work that the team did on this proposition was trying to figure out what's that relationship between the master brand or the parent brand of Folgers and what 1850 was as its own brand. And I think that's a lot of times some of the biggest questions we have when we're launching innovation platforms is how do you think about that relationship between the parent brand and the platform and and who leads and who follows and what are you borrowing from the parent brand and what are you maybe building back in as a new equity or a new consumer for um, the parent brand from the innovation. And so the team did some really smart, both qualitative and quantitative work to really figure out what that relationship was going to be between 1850 and Folgers. So if folks maybe don't know this, 1850 actually was inspired by the year that Folgers was founded. So Folgers has been around since 1850. It came to life during the gold rush in San Francisco. And uh, actually consumers give the brand a lot of credit when they learn that little factoid because they'll tell us things like, oh, that must mean you're doing something right if you've been around for so long. And so as a new brand, 1850 had certainly a linkage to Folgers and kind of an origin story to be able to tell in this new brand. But at the same time, we also learned if we lean too heavily on Folgers from both a consumer and a retailer perspective, we maybe weren't going to get that credit for being a more premium, more bold product profile. You know, we worried a little bit that if we lean too heavily on Folgers, maybe consumers and retailers, quite honestly, might think, oh, is that just the same coffee now in a bag instead of a can? And so really figuring out what needed to lead, what was there as support, was one of the biggest unlocks in terms of how to bring this new proposition to life. And that hierarchy within that master brand is so important to nail. And from an insight standpoint, was there anything unique that you you applied to, to bring this brand to market? 
So I think one of the more interesting insights uh, projects that we did was to figure out what bold meant for the consumer. And so the team did some really nice, deep, qualitative research to figure out the meaning of bold. And for 1850, it's a bit of a double entendre. So you have bold as the product profile. It's a very bold, kind of darker roast product profile that we wanted to be able to highlight, again, as being very different than what Core Folgers was offering. And for this younger consumer that we were going after, we also wanted to understand what bold meant in terms of a mindset and a lifestyle. And so being able to really figure out what both of those meant, how they built on each other, really helped the team figure out then how to bring the proposition to life and did have a nice impact then on what that meant, especially for marketing communications. Well, it sounds like some tremendous and comprehensive insights work really went into that launch. You must have had some setbacks along the way. Uh, Did you have any barriers that you had to overcome? There were a lot of barriers. And I always think with innovation, something is going to go wrong, especially when you have a big bet platform or new brand innovation. And I think it's always smart for us to be ready to find those insights of where things are maybe going off the rails so that we can be prepared to pivot early versus, you know, later on the process, finding something didn't go well, and we're left flat-footed, and now we're scrambling. And so one good example of where something didn't exactly go right for 1850 was in the package design. So we did some really nice work to help develop a beautiful package design to bring this proposition to life. And we did research before the launch, and it confirmed that both from kind of those consumer perspectives in terms of is it conveying our value proposition and positioning the right way, check, it was doing a nice job there. And from a shopper perspective, it also really nicely broke through on shelf. So we were feeling great about this package design that would be really successful. The challenge was when we launched the proposition, we found that our neighbors on shelf had also changed their packaging. And so a design that we had that actually had stood out in an old competitive set now no longer was standing out as well on the shelf. And so I give the team a ton of credit for pivoting quickly to figure out what we could do to adjust. I mean, this was early in the launch, so we could not just do a 180 flip in terms of what the package design would look like. That would really have stunted the momentum of this initiative, but the team was able to bring in some kind of new elements into the design that did help it break through on shelf better in this new competitive environment while still retaining the overall kind of look and feel that we had initially launched with. So that's a really important learning and also a great example of the ability to pivot. And was there anything special about sort of the team that you had on this initiative that allowed you to make that change so, you know, so close to market? Yeah, I think everybody was all in on this particular initiative. The team was really working nicely across all the functional groups that had a hand in creating and monitoring this initiative. So you had the brand teams and innovation and insights and R&D and all the cross-functional partners. We had expected that this would be a very sizable launch for the company. And so that meant that it had a lot of eyes on it um, from an executional standpoint as it also got into market. Um, And I think having that trust within the team to have some open and honest conversations and be willing to just roll up our sleeves and figure out what can we do to pivot was really integral so that uh, everybody was kind of open to, to ideas about how to make things better going forward. Yeah. And with an initiative like this, there's got to be some measure of success. How did you assess the, the performance of this 
this launch? Yeah, having uh, an accurate and realistic sense of what success will look like before the launch is so, so important. And this is one where we had to adjust that expectation. So prior to launch, we had done a lot of good work to assess the concept potential, how great the product was delivering. Um, both of them looked like they were going to be in good shape. And we had expected that we were going to have really um, robust marketing support, as well as a fast and robust distribution support plan. And all those things together would have led to a very large size of prize. Unfortunately, as often happens with innovation, the execution didn't really kind of play out the way that we had um, put on paper prior to launch. And so we definitely had to adjust our expectations in terms of how big big was going to be and what success would look like. And one of the biggest things I think that I took out of this particular exercise was not just looking at success in terms of you know, your overall dollars and profit for the, the particular initiative, but really thinking about things through the lens of the retailer as well in terms of what success would look like. Um, I think you know, probably most marketers do know that velocity matters when it comes to their item performance. And this is one that we probably didn't think about until a little bit late in the process. So as I kind of reflect back on this particular launch, even though the overall retail dollars were lower than what we had initially expected, again, because the execution was um, not what we had originally planned, what ended up happening was those dollars were spread across a lot of items and each of those items then had lower velocity. And so it's a good lesson learned in terms of thinking about how concentrated do you want that volume to be when you launch your items? You know, obviously we need a, more than one item to show up on shelf for a big innovation platform. Otherwise you're not gonna have the scale and the, the visibility and presence at retail to really be successful. But having too many items can mean that that those dollars and that velocity gets spread too thinly, and then that puts everything at risk. Yeah, that's such an important lesson, and I'm glad you could you could share that because there's a lot of listeners that are considering these extensions within a well-known brand and, and making sure that you're not spreading yourselves too thin. That's a really important lesson. I'm so glad you shared that. Anything else you want to share about the Folgers 1850 story? It's the only other thing that I was thinking about, Jess, is when things don't go well, because inevitably something's going to cause you to have to pivot, how do we help ourselves focus on the things that will actually make a difference? And what I mean by that is in the case of 1850, um, velocity obviously was challenged, as I was just mentioning, but we also saw that our distribution was a challenge. And so both the breadth and the depth of distribution, as well as the shelf placement, um, were not as optimal as we had wanted. And so those were some key things that really needed to get addressed in order to be successful. However, uh, as a team, we actually put a lot of energy into pivoting from our marketing communications. And so, you know, we came up with a new advertising campaign not long after we had launched. The creative was not necessarily better than what we already had in market. And in hindsight, I'm like, oh gosh, could we have just put those dollars against more media support on the existing creative or helping to solve the things that actually would have made a difference to get that distribution and to drive those velocities up. And so in hindsight, it's one of those cases where can we make sure that as we're pivoting, we're focusing on the things that will actually make a difference, not just the things that we know that we can control because it's 
easy, if you will, um, if you have the dollars to be able to come up with new marketing, but is that really the right lever to be pulling? Um, in this particular case, I'm not sure that it was. Yeah. Well, it takes years in the industry and so many of those types of launches to build that arsenal of lessons, Jill. So I think that you have, you learned a lot and, and probably put that, you know, learning into play at subsequent uh, positions and, and go, go to market strategies. Let's turn to you as a thought leader. You are such a leader in this industry, and I'd love to tap into some of your thinking. What would you say is one of your more controversial or passionate opinions about the state of innovation or the state of building brands today? So I don't know that this is necessarily controversial, but I'm definitely passionate about it. And that is the role of evidence-based marketing and pulling the right levers to grow brands over the long term. And so what I mean by evidence-based marketing is really thinking about household penetration as the one way to grow brands sustainably over the long term. Um, all brands are going to have a leaky bucket and we have to both replenish and protect those lighter users in order to grow household penetration over the long term. And so that means doing things um, from a tactics perspective that will actually encourage that household penetration. So I still hear from teams that say, oh, I want a loyalty program. Well, that's nice, but that's not going to grow household penetration, right? Or making sure that as we have our precious marketing dollars to spread around, that we're trying to do our best as possible to put those dollars against tactics that are actually going to drive your equity and your long-term business building, not just your sales in the short term. And so those are tactics like television, which still has a role if the brands have budget to be able to suspend against it. Premium digital video, those do a really nice job of growing your brands over the long term. Um, but a lot of times, because we have pressure for the short term, and so many of us are also finding the role for retail media in our overall marketing budgets, those are short-term sales driving media tactics. And so making sure that we have that right balance so that we don't just put in place plans that are only going to grow our brands in the short term and not also help them for the long term. Yeah. And I know part of that point of view has this idea of, you know, strengthening physical and mental availability. What are some of the ways that you found are most uh, impactful to increasing things like mental availability? Yeah, mental availability um, is so important. So you want consumers to be thinking about you when they have a specific job to be solving in their lives or they're ready to go um, you know, buy you at the shelf, whether that's physical shelf or an online shelf. And so things like making sure that you're in that mindset because you have had marketing communications that make sure that you're still top of mind, making sure that you're doing things like leveraging your distinctive brand assets really consistently. So so that they know who you are and can identify you really readily. Um, that applies both for your brand building and your innovation efforts. So those are a couple of things that come to mind in terms of that mental availability. So important and I think can be lost nowadays. So I'm glad to hear that that's core to what you believe. And what new tools or approaches or frameworks have you started leveraging that have had an impact? Yeah, I think there's always new tools in our industry. And I think that's one of the things that makes insights in analytics really fun is that there are new things to explore. So I think a lot of us these days have been talking about things like generative AI and figuring out if and how and where that can fit in with our tool set as insights professionals. You know, and as I think about that tool set, it's 
probably, even though the tools are maybe evolving over time and they always have been evolving, it's figuring out what that right balance is between things that are tried and true and the things that are newer. So today we might be talking about generative, generative AI, whereas, you know, decades ago, we might've been talking about things like system one methods or behavioral science methods or things of that nature. It's all about figuring out what's the right approach that makes sense given your business need and your learning need um, and having some appetite to be able to experiment and figuring out how some of these newer tools can play a role based on your needs. And are there unique challenges that we're facing these days as an insights discipline where we are sort of forced to think more creatively, whether it's how we leverage budget or what tools we are using? Yeah, I think the budget question is a really good one, Jess, because I've historically found that, um, well, one, budgets don't tend to grow very much, right? Like there were really pressured to make precious use of all of those dollars. And what that ends up leading to a lot of times is that those, do those dollars are put against the initiatives that we know are coming. So we say, oh, we're going to be launching a new campaign this next year. I know what my learning plan needs to look like and what that budget needs to look like in order to successfully launch that that new campaign. Same thing with innovation. I'm going to have a new innovation launch. What are the steps I need to do from an insights perspective to help inform the commercialization process? And so then what happens is that pretty much all of our dollars get taken up by these known initiatives. And it's just a real pain point that teams have. And so my challenge to myself and my peers is to say, can we set aside some dollars in those not growing budgets to be able to allow ourselves to um, be surprised about something for our brands and our categories and our consumers to go into a project where you don't know what the answer is going to be or what you're exactly looking for. And it's maybe a leap of faith in terms of what would come out of that research. Um, so many times it's we're just getting answers to move initiatives along versus really allowing for true insights to emerge. And so anything that we can do to, to find some room in our, again, not growing budgets to allow that to happen, I think would be well served uh, for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that idea of be surprised. There's some freedom when you go into a research initiative without a lot of hypotheses, right? And just see where the, where the yes. research takes you. So that's really inspiring. I'm glad you shared that. So what's your hot take on the future of, of our industry, whether that's the, the CPG industry or, you know, insights and innovation? What's, what's your hot take? So my hot take would be figuring out um, how we're going to be balancing the what's in the house um, from an insights perspective. I think there's always been kind of this pendulum that shifts in our industry where people are really interested in the human side and kind of the whys and the qualitative and the ethnographic. And then there was a time that, you know, big data and data analysis was really in vogue. And the reality is it's both, right? And so figuring out that healthy balance in terms of understanding what's going on, having the true human insights underneath that, I think will be probably a continued and pendulum shift that happens in our industry. And it's up to each of us then to figure out what that right balance is to be able to best inform and inspire our businesses. I think that's completely correct. So let's turn to the final dig. This is all about you as a consumer, as a person. So feel free to take off your professional hat if you wish. Uh, but what's the last product or service you bought on Impulse? 
Okay, so this would have to be at Thanksgiving when I was in Costco and not intending to buy their huge $5 <laughs> pumpkin pie, but it made its way into my cart and it was absolutely delicious. Um, I could not pass that up. I had been intending to make one homemade for my family, but um, $5 for something that was like bigger than my head was kind of amazing and it was delicious. It is delicious. I know. And gosh, I don't know how they forecast the demand for that because there's got to be so much impulsivity that happens with that particular product at this time of year. Um, that's a good one. <clears throat> What's a category or a brand or a product that you could really rationalize any price point for? You just have to have it in your life. So I would say for me, um, it, it may be a surprise, uh, but it's greeting cards. So early in my career, I had the privilege to work at Hallmark. Um, it was a lovely company, some amazing training I feel like I got early on in my career. And even way back then, consumers were really price sensitive. Um, and this was even before online greeting cards. So it was a long time ago. But for me, if I see a beautiful design with just the right sentiment, because I know that I will be able to express it as well, I I don't even look at the price point. Yeah, that's a really cool one. And I love how it's tied to your early career. I'm sure there's some nostalgia for that whenever you're shopping in that category. Very cool. Um, well, we know that brands have very distinct personalities. Today, we talked about Folgers, uh, but you've worked on so many brands. Uh, what's a brand that you would choose to date? And what's a brand that you might marry? And they could be the same, but they could be different. That's such an interesting question. Oh, gosh. Especially as an insights person, I don't know that I would have a brand that I would marry because I'm always just so curious about the breadth that's out there. Um, but a brand with a distinctive personality um, that I love, and it's a nice one that ties into our coffee story, is Cafe Bustello. And the reason that I really love this particular brand is because its positioning is all about an invitation to experience Latin coffee and coffee culture. And I just think it's such a beautiful, lovely, inclusive way to both celebrate the brand's heritage and history, but invite everybody from all walks of life to participate in that. Yeah, that's a great one. I can remember that package design very distinctly as well. And it definitely personifies what you just what you just talked about. And finally, Jill, what keeps you inspired at work? So I think our space as insights professionals is so fascinating. It is constantly evolving, right? Our consumers are always changing. Our brands have new challenges. Our competitors get tougher every year. And so what keeps me inspired is helping to solve those really meaty challenges with our teams. Um, I love really listening to the consumer, figuring out what that insight is, and then collaborating with the teams to figure out what do we do about that? Um, I My personal perspective is that we don't operate in a world of black and white where there's just one right answer and one wrong answer. I think there's a lot of shades of gray and it's up to us to figure out what the most right answer is that does the best job of meeting the consumer's needs, but that we can actually execute and, and make money at for our businesses as well. So that's always an ongoing challenge and is something that keeps me just really inspired because I'm always learning something new and having a new challenge to get after. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, it's a good reason for inspiration. We're so glad that you're part of the industry and I've led teams and brands that are just a part of a lot of our lives. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jill. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me today, Jess. Like what you heard? Share the inspiration or head to diginsights.com to learn more about what we do. 